Welcome back, lords, ladies, and lovelies, to Black Girl Tea Party. My name's Yasmin Hill. And I'm Alexandria Dorsey. First up, let's get right into the brew. Yasmin, what is brewing for you this week? This week, I wanted to talk about the commencement of the Derek Chauvin trial. Um, when we're rec- As we're recording this, the trial is on day nine. So this past week has definitely been... An interesting one, for sure. I know that, I mean, obviously this case has been highly politicized sheerly because of the um, events and the protests and the unrest nationally and internationally that followed George Floyd's tragic murder. Um, So I knew that this was going to be a big deal and I appreciate that we're able to you know, receive all this information as quickly as we are. The other part of me is hurting for a couple of reasons. I think it's it's working in a couple of different ways, at least in my mind. I am hurting, one, because I'm, you know, I'm seeing people misattribute what this whole trial is about. A lot of people are saying it's the Floyd trial, when in reality, that is not the person that is on trial. It is the Derek Chauvin trial because he's being charged with, you know, he's the one being charged with manslaughter. And I think it is, I don't know, it's frustrating for me because we're seeing how everyone, as soon as we get an update, everyone is, you know, able to formulate an opinion, able to put that into the into the universe. And I, I really hate that. George Floyd has become a martyr for anti-black racism and for police brutality against black people, um, which I definitely think that that is what this instance was. And I'm not taking that away from this at all. Um, but I, I, I don't know. It, it's also giving me very there. I mean, there are definitely clear parallels between George Floyd and Rodney King. And I, you know, I can't help but see those um I can't help but see those parallels and I understand why nationally everyone would want to be following this. And like I said, I'm, you know, I'm glad that there's live updates about it and that we're consistently being given more and more information, but it also feels a little, it feels exploited. It feels exploitative in, in a regard. And that's why it's, that's why it's hard for me specifically because the the journalist in me, the the informant in me is like, we have to give all of this information. It is, you know, we all have a right to know what's happening because because of the gravity of the situation and because of how this instance, how this eight minute video affected our news, our zeitgeist, our everything that we were talking about for months. So I could, you know, I, I definitely understand why America is on the edge of their seats, you know, nine days into this trial. But it's also, you know, I can't help but thinking that in a world where the social is impacting the judicial so much that I think it can affect the verdict in in, in some way. Um, I, I have not been watching the live updates um exclusively I, I did see clips of 
one of the witnesses and he how he was being you know grilled about the words and the language he was using in in this video and he's not even the one on trial so they're trying to go for the defense that like because this black man that witnessed the murder of another black man at the hands of police because he doesn't like police we we can't value his testimony we can't we can't view it as being valid it is an invalid testimony that's the that's the flimsy argument that uh the defense is going for in that in that moment right it is is, (laughs) yeah it's not a good one it's not a good defense but i'm just i don't know all of these things are it's just making me kind of reflect and i don't know i i don't even know where i'm going i just feel very conflicted about the coverage yeah like i also i've seen bits and pieces of things from this trial but i haven't seen a ton simply because like at the current moment for me it's just like it is emotionally taxing to watch a trial that is about whether or not it was justified that someone who looks like you was murdered you know and under what circumstances that murder would be justified and it all together is just really difficult um but yeah i on occasion i do have like some issues with some of the coverage that i have seen and honestly just with the way that people are talking about it you know like it's it is a lot of outside influences i think kind of like corrupting what is happening inside the trial you know like it's not being i don't know necessarily it's being completely tried as like a we are looking at the facts of whether or not this is a murder it is kind of we are pulling on a lot of what are the outside influences that could have affected this case you know and those are two really different questions and two really different things yeah i mean yeah because you you have to exhaust all of the the angles but at the end of the day it's not about a counterfeit 20 dollar bill and it's not about fentanyl which one of the toxicologists already said was not what killed him and like we saw months ago what the conversation devolved into i think it's just going to keep spiraling in that way you know picking apart ways to justify the death of this man because if this like if society at large doesn't believe that he was a quote good man then that in some way would like justify his death or his murder and that's a disgusting fact right it's 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 a disgusting like state to be in to be like oh we have to diminish this person's character so much so that nobody has to be held accountable for his death and it's re- it's dehumanizing it is a tactic they, they they this is a strategy it is a dehumanizing strategy that has been applied to black people for generations so there's nothing new or unique happening it's just disappointing i guess to see it 
Yeah, like this is this trial should be about like is it okay for a cop to murder someone who has not even been tried for a crime? Like that is the that is the crux of what this case should be. This case should be about is it okay for a cop to put his knee on someone's neck as a form of restraining them and is it okay that that person died as a result of that action and I'm worried that that those are not going to be the questions that we're going to be answering and I'm also worried that if we do answer those questions it is going to be in a way that is not going to be honoring to George Floyd's life or his body or the people that he's left behind you know um but yeah we'll see (laughs) we'll see how um how the rest of this trial goes yeah zan what is brewing for you this week oh what's brewing for me this week is i think that we gotta talk about uh chet hanks oh yeah disgusting um so Chet Hanks decided that he was going to purse his lips and create a movement called White Boy Summer. And he says um, in a, I was reading it, I was reading an article from Insider about this whole deal. um, And he says, um, they they quote him as saying um, from his Instagram, I think you think he went on, um, it was on Instagram that he like coined the term White Boy Summer. And in that, he says, the concept of what it means to be a a participant in White Boy Summer is a little bit more nuanced than you expect. Um, And then this Insider article goes on to say, the patriarch of White Boy Summer then posted the rules of his new movement on his Instagram story the day after his first video. Speaking with a faux Jamaican accent he's become known for, a shirtless Hanks informed his congregants that thou shall not wear plaid shorts, plaid shirts, excuse me, plaid shirts, vineyard vines, or Ralph Lauren while drinking with the boys. There shall be no uh, Sperry topsiders, no calling girls smoke shows, and no salmon-colored attire. Other rules in the days that followed included additional clarity on footwear, um, to which he said, flip-flops are good, especially the Gucci ones, but Birkenstocks are banned. And so... Let's talk about Chet Hanks, who, like, we've haven't talked about before on this show, but has been, like, a place of controversy in the world for a minute. Um, I remember, I do remember this happening when this 30-year-old um, Chet Hanks was, was, a, was in a bunch of controversy because he was defending the use of the N-word some time ago. And Wait, he was talking what? about how he says it on his black friends all the time. And at the time it was 2015 and he was like, it's 2015. I think you should like come into the new age where everyone can say the N word. And we were all like, no, Chet Hanks, um, maybe not. Um, but also, also, um, I think at the time he was also dating a black woman at the time and he's done and said some pretty like fetishizy things about black women. Um, and is and is possibly um, like abusive towards his ex girlfriend, um, considering the fact that she does have like a restraining order against him for allegedly throwing a bottle at her. Um, 
and she also like alleges that um he called her a ghetto black b-word and has said other very hateful things to her um so there's some allegations around him and the black community going um already out there in the world and then he decides to, you know, continue to stir the pot by coming up with White Boy Summer. And I don't know who's going to have to explain to Chet Hanks that every summer is White Boy Summer. That there is never a summer where there's never a time in any season, fall, spring, winter, or otherwise, where white men are not encouraged to, like, love themselves and love being themselves, you know? And I think they'll talk about, like, appropriation once again on the show. Because, like, when Meg- when the- when our queen, goddess, and savior, Megan Thee Stallion said hot girl summer it was about like freedom of sexuality freedom of body freedom of like in like your own like womanhood and in your own like fineness you know like it was about loving your body it was about like wanting to do with your body whatever it is that you want to do with it you know it was about like going out with your girls and wearing fits you know to go to brunch go to the club go to be in your house do whatever need to be done during that hot girl summer now but like and like this is not and like what this says to me that, that he decides to create white boy summer is that like chet hanks does not understand what hot girl summer was supposed to be you know and like this is a line of i think of honestly i think white people trying to like rebrand something that was already good like remember i don't know if you remember this as mean when like i think like christian girl fall was like a meme oh i did see that very briefly i was like get this off of my timeline um right right and like it's like it's also kind of a thing of course like these are people who don't understand what the term hot girl summer means you know by trying to create like christian girl fall which i guess was very much like a a white women's way of these of like sanitizing and also like um of this movement that, was, that wasn't even about religion at all and making it about something you know like i just feel like i feel like it's one of those things like if it ain't broke don't fix it but also like you can't just use words and phrases that have intention and then not use them for that intention you know like there's nothing yeah. wrong with hot girl summer you know no. like they want the, was a beautiful thing they want and the morality white boy summer isn't good i don't know it's bad it's racist it's bad he's also okay he's also trying to profit off of this he has when i searched up white boy summer for this part of our show like the sixth thing um in line was a whiteboysummer.com that is selling his merch yeah and that's a, that's what i was saying i was like they they want the virality they know that hot girl summer is like a, a catchy slogan that you attribute to Meg the Stallion, who like is a very successful artist right now. And so they they want to hop on the train and also get some coins with it, whether that is in the form of like likes and retweets or if it's in the form of like selling merch. Because what yeah, this is nonsense. White boy summer is nonsense and you know, I'm gonna clown anybody who is participating in this seriously. <laughs> because like you know you you said it earlier every day is white boy summer what are you talking about 
like every single day of the year is white boy summer <laughs> and so i i just don't understand um i don't understand this other than it being like a feeble attempt to cling to relevancy like legitimately and like i don't think that chet hanks really has to his father is literally tom hanks your dad is tom hanks i don't think you have to cling to relevancy in this way but also like again it's the i think chet hanks is a man who fetishizes black culture like as, as i said earlier he keeps speaking in this like faux jamaican accent when he is not jamaican or has any relatives from jamaica and he has said and done a lot of like really fetishizing things about black women and i think he's also created like a like a black queen summer merch as what i'm reading right now which like this is what hot girl summer is about and anyway it's it's like clearly you just again like you just want to profit off something that was already existing but you want to make money from it and it's just and it's like i just think this is a this and also like the things that he is saying you're not doing during this supposed white boy summer are things that like are just i don't know like i'm just i'm frustrated with it i'm frustrated with it just because it's like chet hanks doesn't need to do this he doesn't need to and this is just i think is a very obvious like capitalistic cash grab for something that he doesn't need to do and i'm very upset at you chet hanks and i know you will never listen to our show but if you listen to it a stop like <laughs> trying to be us i don't know girl like i just think i think maybe i think maybe you have some issues with your whiteness and i think maybe you have something internally yeah, going on there to where you think that like stealing from black culture and black people is what's going to validate you in some way and i'm like sir maybe like learn to love what you I mean, have I going on and to not steal from black people i don't know i don't know try it out i mean he can speak in patois all day long but i want to know what are you doing to help jamaican economies where open your purse are you where's the money at like speak in patois all day long well don't do it dude don't speak in patois but it's like how are you gonna do that and then also like not open your purse <laughs> like what are you doing you know like you're not even benefiting this culture at all or representing representing it in a way that is like good so right give the girls money at least if you're gonna do it like That's i don't want I'm like saying. i don't know girl like donate to the island if you're gonna speak in their accent and use their culture <laughs> maybe like i don't know be putting some of this money back into like the community that you were trying to steal from like maybe donate to some blm organizations maybe donate to like some some like underfunded places i don't know like there are a lot of there are a lot of charities in some cards somewhere on twitter that you could like be giving money that is going to put money back in these in, in these communities that you clearly so desperately want to be a part of you know like i i don't know i didn't see chet hanks putting his body on the line this summer i didn't see that i don't know where it was but i didn't see it um so like chet hanks if you're going to steal from my people and steal our way of dress and speaking and being um i suggest you start giving us coins for that actually uh maybe compensate us in some way 
um i suggest maybe you what if you sent all of your followers all of your black followers a smooth hundred dollars to the cash app i don't know a something a something um chet hanks do better and that's my that that's my brew for this week and with that it's time for tea Yes, this week's episode is in conversation with last week's episode on the war on drugs, so don't forget to make sure you're all cut up. This week we'll be discussing prison abolition. Coming out of the national uh, civil unrest, you know, that happened this summer, I talked about it early in my brew, there's been an increase in dialogue around defunding, reforming, and even abolishing the police. The abolitionist movement was an effort to end slavery and the transatlantic slave trade, and in turn, liberate enslaved people in, in the Americas. This issue is a difficult one to tackle considering how slavery, the incarceration of people, and the destruction of those systems are all fundamentally linked. Yeah, exactly. Like the all of those things are in conversation with one another, um, specifically because that like that's how the abolitionist movement started, right? Um, but that's also like where prisons were birthed too. Prisons were birthed out of like the slave slave era. So like even information, all of these things are um they're linked together but there are multiple perspectives for prison abolitionists in the book instead of prisons a handbook for abolitionists author Faye honey nope outlines nine perspectives for abolition some of those we're going to highlight are as follows the first one imprisonment is morally reprehensible and indefensible and must be abolished this means that uh the perspective frames abolition as a long-term goal and as a means that in a free and it means that in a free society prisons cannot exist or else they will always prevail meaning like in a if a society has prisons like it is not necessarily like free and there's two the message of abolition requires honest language and new definitions nope says that language is defined by those in power if we continue to use dehumanized language to describe imprisoned people, then it'll be easier for society to, for society to continue to deny said people's personhood. This means not referring to prisoners as inmates or as like prisoners, but as to <laughs> as, as I just did, because clearly I'm also unlearning a lot of things about my own about my own language and society. But to, as to referring to them as incarcerated people, and as to referring and, and referring to them in a way that it's going to reaffirm their humanity yeah i know exactly and then uh, the last one that i think is um really good so we're we're highlighting the main three but abolitionists believe that crime is mainly a consequence of the structure of society this is the idea that if we change the way we approach large-scale problems we could limit the amount of criminal injustice and the amount of violent crimes so i definitely recommend taking the time to explore like the remaining perspectives obviously we don't have like infinite time so um I don't think it would be beneficial to go through all of them, but I definitely think that these provide a good basis for our conversation. Yes, there are so, so many nuances to the conversation around prison abolition. And so we really encourage that you continue to dive into these into the subject on your own. And we're going to be, of course, linking every article that we talk about um, in the show notes for this episode. Um but many of the reasons that we are so tied to prisons is that we are tied to the idea that those who do wrong deserve punishment and that prison is a deterrent from wrongdoing. 
but that actually isn't super true. According to prisonpolicy.org, with over 2 million people behind bars at any time, the United States has the highest incarceration rate of any country in the world. And we spend about $182 billion each year to lock up nearly 1% of our adult population. And that's not even considering the amount of children that we put in juvenile detention, which is essentially also prison. Um, and also like this, what this means is that there are tons of community members, which is how we should continue to think about incarcerated people who are vital, vital to a lot of other people's lives who are behind bars and they're in a position that is not respecting their humanity, but also that is separating them from a sense of community as a result. Um, which is how we get into oftentimes the goals of abolitionists are misinterpreted. The efforts to delegitimize the police are met with criticism. A Vox 2020 article analyzes a commercial funded by the state government leadership foundation in which a white family calls the police to stop a break-in, but they cannot be helped because no one is available. The ad ends with the lines, radical liberals are fighting for a police-free future. Don't let them put your family in danger. The goal of abolitionists is to reframe our system of public safety in a way that prioritizes social and economic equity. They have a different view of what causes crime. In the world, they imagine America would spend much more on education, healthcare, and infrastructure, and nothing on police departments as we currently know them. Exactly. Before I go into, what do you think about this ad? Oh my gosh. I I remember I've seen this ad. I, I actually, I have seen it like on my television, actually, when I was watching Jeopardy with my, with my uh, mom, my grandmother, as I do. And I remember, I remember thinking that it's ridiculous, you know, like this is never, this is never, A, this isn't how like break-ins work, you know, like in that situation, a police presence is like highly reactionary because like, the police don't do anything to stop the break-in. And also, they're not going to get there by the time that the person who was breaking in has already... But then, okay, by the time the police get there, the, the person who was breaking in has already, like, looted through your stuff and has already stolen what they're going to steal and has, like, yeeted themselves out of there, you know? And they also usually aren't putting a whole lot of resources into figuring out who has broken into your very specific house and has stolen your stuff. Like, this is not going to be a crime that is usually going to get solved anyway. And so it's like, first of all, the term radical liberal makes no sense. Like, I think, like, inherently in the U.S., like, we, our, like, leftist movement is, like, is, like, center conservative to other places. But in any case, um, like, this just isn't how break-ins work. This isn't what abolitionists mean when we want to abolish police and prisons. This isn't like the reality of policing in the U.S. anyway. Like it just it's it's really it's a false narrative on every on every axis. You know, like I don't know if the, if the person who made this ad has ever had someone like break into their car and you have to call the police so that your insurance can have like the claim and the police report. But like the police get there. They have you sign some stuff, you tell them what happened, and then they leave. Like, it doesn't stop the person from breaking into your car. You know, like, you are still in a sense of danger because this person is coming to your home or they broke into your car and this thing has happened, and the police can't 
do anything about that. So I don't know. Like it just, it, I it was laughable to me when I saw this ad because like, what this isn't the issue and this isn't solving the issue either. You know? Oh yeah, it, it's fear mongering at its best, definitely. It, it it definitely is fear mongering. But I agree. I I also thought it was laughable, which is why I asked you what you thought. Um, one because they're making the the argument that like because people want to defund the police that like no one will be around to protect you but i don't think that is the goal of abolition it's not it, it's not i don't think i know for a fact that that is not the goal of abolitionist right the goal is not to live in like some anarchist lawless society right if it was then they would be anarchists <laughs> you know what i'm saying right and the so there's a difference even in like those ideologies and so when we say like we um when reformists are like we need to move around these funds for xyz reason they're not saying oh we need to move around these funds so that no one will be able to protect this family that gets burgled at night so also you're more likely to be like your house is more likely to be broken into in the daytime than it is at night it is just fun fact but anyway (laughs) um you know uh, referring back to one of the main principles of abolition, if crime is a consequence of structure, then destroying that power, like destroying the power that those structures hold will impact the the crime. And so like there's a heavy burden on police to handle issues that they may not necessarily be trained for, um, much like instances of domestic abuse, substance abuse, or even with dealing with um, neurodivergent civilians. So, like, promoting community initiatives to handle these kinds of incidents can, one, like, relieve the burden on those officers and also be net better for civilians. I know, um, personally, I've had to interact with the police and my family has had to interact with with the police for reasons um, like this. And that is, like, a very scary um, situation to be in. I don't want to give too much um, information, but, you know, when you're dealing with someone who has a mental illness and needs help a lot of times or from my personal experience um cops or authority figures kind of exacerbate that you know that fear i think they they bring an intensity with them that does not help the situation or did not help the situation from what i observed right right and i think i also i feel like when you are living in society and under a thought process that assumes that like prisons and police are going to like prevent these issues like that is assuming that like everyone feels comfortable with police which we talked about before where like especially when you have such high incarceration rates that affect like brown and black people and people with disabilities like more like that is a whole population that is going to do whatever they can to avoid having to work with police and so it's like this is a whole population that doesn't even get to use this quote-unquote resource anyway because it is actively dangerous for them to do it you know and like also also again if prisons are supposed to be a deterrent then why is it that the U.S. has the highest incarceration rate, you know? Because, like, if prisons were a deterrent, then, like, our prisons would be empty under that, like, thought process, you know? Or they would have, like, significantly less people than they have right now. And so that what that means is that it's not necessarily 
doing its job, you know, if that's the case. Um, which, like, there are multiple aspects of the prison industrial complex that have detrimental effects on the public. And then there has to be, like, a period of reevaluation about what those effects are. Uh, probation programs are insufficient for deterring crime, and oftentimes parolees end up back in prison. Um, so we have, we are, both Yasmin and I are from Georgia, and so 40% of Georgians have a criminal record. We also, our state also leads the nation with over 200,000 people on probation, which is 321% higher than the national average. In Georgia, two out of three people released from prison are rearrested within three years. Our state's recidivism rate is close to 50%, which like when I read that stat the first time, I, I was frankly shocked and like what this what this is telling us about prisons is that like prisons aren't stopping aren't like stopping crime they are just creating more incarcerated people and it is a like self-feeding ecosystem which isn't helping our communities and isn't helping the individual people who are caught up in this system um and in fact what the shows is i think that prisons are actually like making the issues of crime worse. Um, I wanted to bring up that the state of prisons and the safety of incarcerated people are deeply inhumane and it's putting a lot of incarcerated people also at risk. Um, according to an article by Time, there have been outbreaks at outbreaks of COVID-19 um, at more than 850 jails and prisons in the country, putting many of the over 2 million people incarcerated in the US at risk of infection. And this was just like in December when that article was written. And so imagine what has happened in that time. Because we're, we're in April right now. So imagine like what has happened to incarcerated people at that time. And I think the fact that there were such high rates of COVID-19 in our prisons at the time says kind of about how we are caring for um, our incarcerated people. Because these are people who are in like close quarters with, with a lot of other individuals these are people who are often like uh shackles very closely to a lot of other individuals and it also says that our prisons are frankly really overcrowded which in, in a way that like is going to increase the risk of these people being infected and what i remember being on the internet when like these stats were released and a lot of people on the internet at the time like were saying a lot of really awful things and a lot of those things involve the fact that, like, maybe people who are incarcerated do not deserve to have treatment and they do not deserve to be living in a, like, clean and healthy facility, which I think is frankly gross, but also says a lot about the way that we think about incarcerated people as far as their humanity and what they deserve, you know? And all of this is, not, all of this is nothing to say of the way that we treat incarcerated people before the pandemic, where in prison there are high levels of assault and violence and exacerbated mental health issues as a result of a lack of community and as a result of things like solitary confinement, which we have no which are known to increase the mental health issues in incarcerated people in our jails and in our prisons. And I just think that it's awful that we continue to treat incarcerated people like they, like they deserve this punishment because they are incarcerated and i i believe in abolition 
for a lot of these reasons that I don't believe that these are what any person deserves you know like in our culture this kind of like love of punishment for incarcerated people can be seen in like sitcoms making don't drop the soap jokes which is literally a joke about rape like and I want to make that very clear that when we make those jokes we've been making that joke for such a long time that that is a, a joke about incarcerated people's bodies being violated and we are joking about that often and in public spaces and what that is saying is that a we don't care about male victims of assault because that is who that joke is targeted at is about male victims of assault but also that we think the people who are in our prison systems deserve to be violated in the most violent way possible and i just think that prisons are places that have cultivated such inhumane activity that I don't think that any person deserves to be in them um yeah so what when you're having conversations about abolition it is not something that can be fixed quick and easy we're not going to wake up tomorrow and just not have any prisons like there definitely has to be like steps to get there which is where the split in philosophies come between reformism and abolition but i definitely think it's important to talk about reformism um still uh like nope says in her book that abolition is not a quick or easy process and that begs the question of what do we do in the interim if we recognize that there is a problem and we recognize that that problem could be structural you know what do you do to solve that and a study in milwaukee showed a stark drop in 911 calls from black people after the story of frank jude came to light and this was something that i had not heard about before doing my research but Jude was left with a broken nose and inner ear bleeding after being beaten by an off-duty cop who was white and Jude is a biracial man. So the attack was in 2004. However, the story did not go public until almost a decade later. And that to me, yeah, just think about that. This thing happened and it was not even public knowledge until years later. The attack was in 2004. However, the story was not public knowledge until over a decade later. And the reason we're looking back at this case specifically is because researchers used those stats in that time to be able to determine if there was a difference in um, trust in like black neighborhoods and black people, if there was a difference in the trust that they had in um, officers at that time. So the lag between when Mr. Jude was attacked and when it became widely known allowed the researchers to isolate the episode's effect on 911 calls. The researchers poured over 110,000 such calls in Milwaukee one year before and one year after the beating. The researchers estimated that 17% or 22,000 fewer calls were made that would have been likely if the attack had never happened. So I think that's a pretty large statistic like 17 percent less calls but i think it's indicative of a culture of not having trust in the authorities that are on face value supposed to be protecting you and i mean i think that's something we have to talk about relationships between low-income neighborhoods and the police relationship between black neighborhoods and the police and this all goes back to 
the root of one, what police are, and two, what prisons are. And so when I say at the beginning of the episode that like both of those things like stemmed out of slavery, that's not like a, like that, that's real life, right? Like the earliest, um, the earliest form of police that we had in America were slave catchers, right? And then after the Emancipation Proclamation, um, there was a period of black success. Black people were actually being successful. We're seeing income. We're seeing um, the benefits of their work. And then we see an increase in black men being incarcerated for loitering, for vagrancy. And that really kickstarts what we, the, the monster that is mass incarceration that is still working today. And so when you look at that of like, you know, in going into the reconstruction era, the, the development of chain gangs and like when Zan, when you talk about like punishment, prison has all, prison in general has always been about punishment. Prison for black people has like, I don't even know how to further that. It, it, there's not even a, it seems like in its formation, there was never a, a period of rehabilitation, at least not for black folks. Literally, the 13th Amendment, like, it still says that, like, slavery can't happen except for as punishment for a crime. Like, that is what our 13th Amendment says. And, like, this is why, you know, even going back to, like, the inhumane conditions of prisons, we are allowed to pay prisoners or, hold on, I need to fix that language. I'm sorry, over our 13th Amendment, like, quite literally says that, like, you can't, like, slavery is illegal in the U.S. except for as punishment for a crime. And so, like, what that is saying is that we are still, like, we can, we can put incarcerated people in a form of slavery if we want it to legally, you know? And in a lot of ways we do, and this goes back to kind of the um, inhumane nature of prisons, is that, like, we pay incarcerated people, like, cents for their labor, and we expect that to be like equitable in some way, you know, like we have never, we have never treated incarcerated people like they are people. And that is like really kind of at the height of my ideas about abolition, about reform is that like, I, I would love if we were living a system where we were treating these individuals like they still had humanity, you know, and like for, and for black people, especially like prison is about being able to put keep bodies in a place that like systemically they've kind of always been you know which is to be used for some for something else and we have prison we have prisons and we have the laws around prison about who can be in prison because we want to be able to control these bodies on a large scale and prisons are a good way to do that you know like that is how you get things like um like vagrancy and loitering laws which like disproportionately affect like well now they disproportionately affect like a lot of like homeless and unhoused people but like these laws were created because it was an easy way to put enslaved people back into a prison system so that you could still use their labor and we are still keeping up with the like bones of this system that are rotting and have never been good for anybody and they're still destroying communities 
now. And I think we just really have to like reckon with that, that this is kind of who we all, who we have always been. And maybe it is time that we decide to not because like a reformist approach still has to recognize that there is like a deep distrust with the criminal justice system and that these systems are always going to be historically racialized and we just have to reckon with that with the racial origins of our prisons and of our police and and justice system if we're ever going to get to a place where we can actually like solve those issues you know um and in that like same vein i want to talk for a little bit about khalif browdner um who was in prison for nearly three years for allegedly stealing a backpack um and he was a young boy when he was arrested and he underwent like beatings by cops in prison and by other incarcerated people he was um, sent to solitary confinement on multiple occasions while in prison and he was suffered a lot of like starvation also while in prison and as like a growing boy and he essentially missed out on all of his adolescence in prison you know like he was um in his early 20s when he was released and i think we have to really think about the conditions that he went through and I'm going to link some articles about this, about Khalif Browner uh, from The New Yorker um, in the show notes, um, because what he went through was something that no person should ever go through, whether they have committed a crime or not. Um, and in the article, in one article uh, about this case, he says that before I went to jail, I didn't know about a lot of stuff. And now that I'm aware, I'm paranoid. He says, I feel like I was robbed of my happiness. And in the afternoon at about 12, 15 p.m., um, some years after Khalif was was released from prison, he took his own life. And his mother was the only person at home at the time. And... This case just always makes me, it makes me deeply frustrated and deeply emotional because like, if it were not for the way that we run prisons, we would still have Khalif Browdner. He would still be in our, in our world and he could still be a person and he would be going about his life today if it were not for the inhumane things that he experienced while he was separated from loved ones and communities and while he was sentenced to solitary confinement for some time while in prison and if he had not spent three years in prison for a crime that just got so deeply backed up in like the courts that they were never able to even prove if he actually did rob this man of his backpack or not like the only reason he was even let out of prison is because like the man who initially accused him went back to mexico and they could not get in contact with him so there was no burden of proof for whether or not khalif even did this which khalif throughout the entirety of his life claimed that he didn't do it and that's why he 
um never took a plea deal is because he was like convinced of his own innocence and he was like i didn't rob this man and i'm not going to say that i robbed this man and he was just i don't know i'm really emotional about his case just because like khalif browner didn't deserve what happened to him and frankly no incarcerated person deserves what what happens to incarcerated people in prison and like he's a part of my takeaway from this episode is that like he is the this boy is the reason why i believe in like prison reform and in prison abolition is because this boy was starved and beaten and abused in prison and he did not deserve that khalif browdner deserves to be in our world right now and it is because of the it's because of racism and it is because of the prison industrial complex that we do not have Khalif Browner. You know, like prisons are these systems that take away so much of a person's humanity and they are not a system that prioritizes human life. And there are systems where that separate people from the things that they need, like food and water and oftentimes as what happened with Khalif, but also by like community, you know, and they also like exact and like Khalif Browner died because he had he had intense paranoia as a result of what he experienced in prison. And he and like he felt like a deep sense of like loss of control over his life. And that shouldn't be the reality for anybody. And people will always say like how we need to separate people from society somehow who do who commit crimes and like how how do we do that in a system that believes in in prison reform or in abolition and it's like well maybe we don't have to separate people from society but also like maybe it'd be better if we got at the crux of the issues that a creates crime like poverty and food insecurity and lack of access to housing and lack of access to education and lack of access to public works maybe if we had those if we solve those issues we could also solve the issues of like you know systemic racism and <laughs> other things that lead people to getting arrested and that lead people to having stories like Khalif Browner's where you feel like the world's out to get you and that the only way that you can get out of it is by voluntarily leaving it in the way that Khalif did. And I just, I don't know. I just feel like we could be living in a system where we have so much more compassion for incarcerated people. I think that begins at seeing incarcerated people as people first and not as possibly the crime that they committed. And not about moralizing about whatever that crime is and maybe about still understanding that these are people who still deserve access to like community and basic human rights, you know. Um, and so like, of course, like, you know, like rest in peace to Khalif Browner, who, you know, I don't, it's one of those things where he's one of those people who like I'll, I never knew, but I'm probably going to be mourning the rest of my life, you know. Um because his story is always going to sit with me somewhere in my chest. But, you know, but also, like, I think we have to think about prisons as, like, this is a system that is, it's stealing people's lives in a way that maybe it doesn't necessarily have to.
Khalif's story is one that is sad all the way around and I wish I had a better adjective but I mean I think that you're right I think his story is indicative of a larger problem and it's like if regardless of you know where your your stance on the prison industrial complex is if you don't think that something like this should happen then that means that something has to change you know it's not like and I think a part of the problem is that there there is a divide um there's a there are people that recognize that there is a problem and under that group of people that recognize that there is a problem there are branches of thought all to get to a solution and then there are other people who don't believe that there is a problem at all that don't care that incarcerated people are being dehumanized and profited on for labor they they don't care that the this system eats bodies and a lot of times those bodies are black and brown bodies and those people are recycled in the system and even when they get out if they live in Georgia there's a 50% chance that they're going to go right back there are a lot of people that do not care about that about those facts so all of the things that we have exposed in this episode that are inhumane that are disgusting that are indicative of the PIC is I think a problem that we're running into and that we're going to continue to run into is that there are people that want it to be different for whatever reason and there are people that don't want it to be different because it doesn't affect them and it's not going to affect them so I think and I hate to sound glib about it that's not my intention I you know I am of the the mindset that there has to be a change and there has to be a change quickly um but that's not but before we even you know there's no point in brainstorming solutions if the majority if we can't even agree that there is a problem do you know what I mean and you know we we would just be talking in circles um so it's, it's pretty gross that we have to work so hard to convince the majority that there is a problem and I also think it just like the it, that ad you know the rhetoric around defunding or reforming or abolition in general is that it is this fantastical idea that that would never have any real tangible you know solution that that wouldn't bring a greater society and as long as we hold that mindset that the way we're doing things if we hold the mindset like the way that we are doing things now is the best way to possibly do them then change is not going to come but we all we that is not true right there there's always going to be a better way there's there has to be a way to enforce policies that doesn't destabilize communities that doesn't eat souls away that doesn't you know disrupt whole families there has to be a way to do that but I think the and the reason that there's not going to be any resolution at the end of this episode is because you know Zan and I can't solve this problem it's it's, it has to be 
ongoing and large scale. Like we said, the like question of abolition has literally been going on for centuries. It's just, you know, different language. Right. Like since we've had prisons, people have been trying to dismantle prisons. Have been trying to break them down. So I don't even I can't even like say in my lifetime. I don't I have no idea. I don't think prisons would be abolished in my lifetime at all. But I, you know, it's frustrating when we recognize that there's a problem but when the when it's time to put the the pedal to the metal when it's time to you know to put some work in it, it's kind of lacking or i what i've noticed is that like because it is a hard conversation to have people would rather just like get to the hump of the conversation and then you know find a resolution which is where i feel like we are at now right and people want answers but the answers aren't easy they're they're not easy and because the answers are not easy people would just rather not have that conversation and that's what i'm talking about there's people that understand there's a problem that are like brainstorming new nuanced ideas on how to get to a solution and then there are other people that are like oh this is not a problem criminals are bad they're inhuman and that's not something that we should have to bother ourselves with and i think as long as those are like two main competing ideas, it's going to be very hard to get to where we need to be. But yeah, but if you want to learn more about abolition, like we said, there's going to be books and links linked down below. Also, I would recommend reaching out or I would recommend looking out for the Marshall Project. They have a curated collection of links all related to prison abolition. I looked at them um, before the show. And so I definitely think that's a good resource Um, that will be linked in the caption as well. And that's a wrap for episode this week. Yasmin, where can our listeners find you? I'm at Yasmin underscore S.A. on Instagram. Zan, where can our listeners find you? I am at it's Alexandria Dorsey on Twitter and Instagram. As always, please follow us at Black Girl Tea Party Instagram and search Black Girl Tea Party on Facebook and at Black Girl Tea Time on Twitter to stay up to date episodes and updates from us. Also, subscribe, rate and review our podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to our show. You can also send us an email at blackgirlteaparty at gmail.com. Um, send us questions ask for advice or just tell us how much you love the show we would love to hear from you remember to love often and with all your heart thanks for joining us this week please love each other and yourselves and we'll see you next week Mm -hmm.